You're listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Ridgecrest Baptist Church in Springfield, Missouri. To connect with us or learn more, visit us online at ridgecrestbaptist.org. It's so good to have our, uh, our friends. I know this spring we weren't able to get everybody here, so it wasn't uh, quite a full experience. And this fall we're going to be able to do that. So if you're a guest of ours, I want to tell you, uh, I'll do my best to make this a memorable day for you, but next week's going to be totally awesome. So be sure and come back next week. It'll bless your heart. It is so funny when you get up here on stage sometimes, you, you say things you regret a little bit, and we love Kelsey so much. She is a, a, an awesome servant of the Lord. We're so blessed to have her leading us in missions. And so she was up here, and she was talking about those cookies, and she, she said that basically... Uh, the women could bake the cookies and the men could bring some. She, she kind of went down that road. Very sexist remark, I felt like. And <laughs> I, I, was, I was taking umbrage over here to that, you know. And the truth is, men, it's okay. Break and bake is still making homemade cookies in our house. So if you need that middle way, that's it. Break and bake, baby, all the way. Anyway, uh, we are so excited to have Kelsey with us, and it's going to be a great week, and our missionaries are with us. Good times. Now, today what I want us to do is take a look at some chapters that aren't exactly good times, but uh, I believe if you'll hold on, I've got to give you the, the medicine, the bad news first, as it were, but if you'll hold on, God has a great and encouraging word for you here today. Because what we're going to do, and this is so important, we're looking at number, or not numbers, but Genesis 6, which is one of the more difficult passages in all of Scripture. In fact, I wish we were preaching number 6. It's one of my favorite prayers in all of Scripture. This, that would be easier. This is a lot harder. But I want you to pay attention because we get lost in the conversations about the Nephilim and the, the sons of God and the daughters of men. What does all that mean? But what we need to see is the correct interpretive lens is to look at this passage through the eyes of our Heavenly Father. If you'll just bear with me and think about the things we're talking about, not from a human perspective, but truly allowing the God perspective of the human condition to fill our hearts and minds, because that's what's going on in this passage today. It is powerful. It is helpful. Because so often when we're talking about sin... We think about sin in relationship to what sin does to us and how our sins affect others. And that's very true. But today we're going to look at it from this other angle because we need to understand what sin does to the heart of God. And when we get that concept down deep in our heart, one, if you're not a believer, I think this could be a, a day when God grabs a hold of your heart and even if you've been walking with Jesus for a long time, when we begin to look through the eyes of the Father, we have, to, we have to recalculate, we have to reconsider our own lives, our own hearts, and where we stand with God. And so for believers today, this is a great opportunity for us to, to rededicate, to put our hearts on track, and to get ready to go on mission together. So if you have your copy of Scripture, will you turn with me to Genesis 6 and stand, if you will, and stand with me as we stand upon the solid rock of God's holy word. I want you to listen to these verses from Genesis 6. 
When men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive. They took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit will not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, they bore children to them. These were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And let me just let you in on a secret. That phrase, found favor, means Noah experienced grace. We're going to hold on to that word today. We need it. Let's pray. Lord, these are heavy words. These are hard things. But God, these are good things when we consider that your grace is sufficient, that your cross will save us. Put our eyes on the cross today as we look through your eyes, Heavenly Father, into the sinfulness of our own hearts. God, we need you today. Speak to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I am 20 days away from my daughter's 20th birthday, which communicates, one, I'm old, and two, that my view of the world has been drastically different in the past 20 years. The perspective of a father uh, really does change the world in many ways. I have viewed the world and filtered the world as a father. Now, I say that to you because when we look at God's Word, as I've already shared, there's something going on here. We're, we're uh, allowed, because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit working through Moses, we're allowed to see the inner workings, not just of our own heart, which would be f- phenomenal, but what we see are the inner workings of God's heart. It's like a fancy watch, you know, if you were to take the face off of it uh, and see all the gears and gizmos to see the inside of it and go, wow, that's what makes it tick. Well, in a sense, we get that kind of view on God's heart. And what we see at first is disconcerting. Look at verse 3. To hear God say, my spirit will not abide in man forever. Notice that, for he is flesh. And verse 7 is even harder to hear. I am sorry I have made them. Some view these words as, as like ungodlike, unbelievable. Why would God say something like that? Like, like he's sorry, like he made a mistake? No, that's not it at all. I think anyone who has ever struggled over the struggles of their children understand this language. This is a father, the heavenly father, no less, but this is a father looking at the failures of his children and being raw and honest about their sins. We don't like these verses because it's not so much what it says about God, but what it says about us. That down deep inside, our hearts are seeking after sin. Our children are a great joy 
and a potential source of great pain. And here we see our Heavenly Father looking at the pain. Many of you here are focused on missions. You are missionaries in your own right, whether it's on the other side of the world or in your school or in your place of work. And I think that what we need to realize here is that the Heavenly Father, our Heavenly Father, is sending us out into a world that is broken. We are called to love a world that is not for us, but against us. It is easy for us when we feel the pushback of the sinful world, when the world not just says no to the gospel message, but there's a point of a spear aimed at us. And our youth group might, might remember a story from their lesson this last week. When there's persecution coming, it is hard to love and to love well. And yet we see here, even as human, humankind, even as human beings are pushing up against God and not listening, we still see some love. But before we can talk about the love, we have to talk about the pain that God experiences here. Now, last week we talked about two very different ways to live. We, we talked about those two paths, the one of Lamech and then the one of Enosh. Now, I want you to realize that last week, I, I really felt like that was a helpful way to think about how, how we live our lives. Are we, are we calling on the name of the Lord, Allah Enosh, or are we kind of just making the most of life, doing our own thing, which is the way of Lamech. Those are easy things to talk about, like your life right now and the actions that you uh, commit day in and day out are telling the world which path you're on. Okay, that's kind of easy. It's external. Today, what we need to do is switch into an internal mode and realize that there are two ways that our hearts are set up. Now, interestingly, how your heart is set up determines how you act, of course. But now we're kind of going into the inner workings again and thinking through all of this sin and righteousness, if you will, from this heart perspective. And we're seeing things only as the Heavenly Father can see them. Sinful human beings, if you think about it, we, we try to separate based on our tribe or skin tone, but you'll see in the text today that what really separates us is more on what I call the soul level. Down deep in our souls, we are either obedient uh, to our creator or disobedient, and that's the real dividing line. We need to get that in our heads, that, that your heart, God sees your heart. You may be able to have outward actions that are good, that most people, the culture, the society might say are good. But know this, our Heavenly Father is looking down deep in our hearts. Here in chapter 4 last week, we talked about these spiritual bloodlines. And in chapter 5, which are the genealogies, um, we have something very interesting. Now, a couple people were kidding with me last week after the service. They're like, are you going to preach chapter 5, which is really hard to do because it's a bunch of genealogies, okay? And, and so I decided not to do that, but let's touch on it for just a moment because it's in chapter 5, if you've read your Bible, and you know that these, these uh, people, Adam and for 10 generations, some of them lived to be 900 some odd years old. Methuselah has the record at 969 years and so that's how we think of this chapter, and we're thinking, wow, I mean, you know, just imagine that. Uh, an, a very uh, elderly person today, you know, is age 90, and to imagine a lifespan that's 10 times that. I mean, when does AARP start when you live? Only the older folks get that, but anyway, 
When, when, when do you get that letter in the mail when you're 969? Maybe, maybe 700? I don't know. Here's one thing, and this, this fifth chapter talking about these people getting old is really bothering me this week because I went to get a sweet tea at McAllister's, and the, and the lady gave me the senior discount. <laughs> I'm hurting, brothers and sisters. I'm hurting today. But anyway, um, when we look at this passage and we see these really long lifespans, it's, it's mind-numbing. But here's the deal. When I look at this passage, I tend to think about how long people live, but that's not the emphasis at all. In fact, nine to, or eight times in the chapter, these words appear, and he died. The emphasis in chapter 5 is not on the long lives. The emphasis is on because of sin, because of what happened in the garden. Now east of Eden, even if people live a really long time, they're going to die. And there's only one exception to the rule, and that is Enoch, who walked with God and was no more. Like 90% or so of this is all death in chapter 5, and only a 10% life. And I want you to know this, that as we get into our text today, it's the same kind of thing. The majority of our text is talking about the way of death and sin. But there is grace. We'll get there. Let's talk about sin and death through the eyes of the Father. It's so important as we look at Genesis 6, 1 through 4, we, we, we take note of some strange things going on here. We have the sons of God and the daughters of men and the Nephilim. Who are these people? Well, even this morning as I was looking at it, I, I got to thinking that, you know, the sons of God could be, and this is just a speculation, the sons of God could be that the, the, the uh, family tree kind of delineated in chapter 5. It's kind of the oldest son kind of thing. But if you'll notice in chapter 5, all throughout every other verse, it's talking about they had other sons and daughters. Well, maybe the daughters of men kind of fit in that category. They're, they're, they're part of the, uh, of the story, but in a lesser sense. The Nephilim, it's another thing altogether. We'll talk about that here in a moment. But what's going on here is, is not so much who are these people, but there's a couple key ideas in the text. One, humanity is multiplying. They're moving uh, along with what God told them to do. Be fruitful and multiply. You certainly see that taking place in the text. But what you really see is that it, they're not just multiplying in terms of the numbers of people, but there's a multiplication of sinful behavior. What we see here is, is that humanity is really growing, but it's growing most in the area of evil. And what we see in chapter 6 is, quite frankly, humanity spinning out of control. If you've ever been driving a car and hit a slick spot on a rainy day and feel that feeling of just not being able, whatever you do with the wheel, it doesn't matter anymore. That's the feeling, theologically speaking, of chapter 6. We've hit a slick spot and there's no way to get traction because sin is serious business. And notice what it says there in verse 3. Humans are described as flesh. In other words, mortal. No matter how proud the world has been, and if we go back to chapter 4, we remember that they built, built cities, instruments, um, uh, agricultural implements, all these things, and yet they're still going to die. What's interesting is, is that the people described in chapter 6 or in chapter 4 are people who are out of touch with their mortality. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. What does it look like to be out of touch with your mortality? Well, look around. 
Because most people are living their lives today just as these people are. Hey, they were figuring they were going to live for 900 plus years. And so they were doing their thing and they were not thinking about their hearts and they were not thinking about God. And though people may not live 900 plus years, people today, most people, they are living their lives oblivious to the fact that the scripture says it is appointed and the man wants to die and then comes the judgment. They're doing their thing without an acknowledgement of their flesh, their mortality, the fact that they will die and meet God. In this way, nothing's changed in the world. People then, people now, are not living as though they're going to meet God someday. Who were these mighty men of old, the men of renown? Let me just put it to you this way. If you could live for 900 years, you might figure a few things out too. Imagine Albert Einstein uh, being able to have a productive lifespan of 900 years. I think he would have been able to figure a lot more out than he did in his lifetime. I don't know how old he lived, but it certainly wasn't anywhere near 900 years. One of the things that we see about this old world, and one thing that I want to caution you, we tend to think that today we're all sophisticated and advanced and the old world wasn't. Man, when people lived that long, they probably had, had some things figured out that even we don't have figured out today. That's why they were uh, men of old, men of renown. And, and part of this, you go, wow, these, these must have been amazing people. No, look at the text. It's very clear. What they were really good at was wickedness. They were evil continually, which means their evil had no bounds. The sons of God and daughters of men produced some strong men, men of renown. But verse 3 tells us it's so bad that God's spirit will not remain in them and that they're going to die at 120 years because 900 plus years is too long. Real quick, the Nephilim, who are they? Many people would think that they're like a race or an identity or a people group, not at all. I think if you look carefully in the scriptures, in passages like Numbers 13.33, Nephilim sort of stands for this. Just, just go with me on this. Nephilim sort of uh, it signifies like a supervillain. These were men of renown, and what they were renowned for was pure wickedness. We really see that in Numbers 13 because none of the tribes were left. So if there was a tribe of Nephilim, they would have been washed away by the flood, and yet the Nephilim are said to still be there. Well, it's not about a lineage or a people group. It's about an attitude. The Nephilim were the people who were the fallen ones. They were people who had put all their eggs in a basket against God. And I want to tell you, they were destined to die. No matter how great a man is, as long as there is sin there, death is coming. The eyes of the Father sees all that. Also, through the eyes of the Father, we see evil hearts. Notice, if you will, what Paul says in Romans 5.12. He says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because of all sin. So with Adam, we see this launching of, of, of a, a worldview and a lifestyle that is not of God. It continues to grow more and more sinful. As I said before, human beings multiply, but the effects of sin multiply too. As sin multiplies, lifespans grow shorter. So what that tells us is, is that sin is not just a spiritual problem, but sin also has a, a physiological component. In other words, the cancers of this world, the heart disease of this world, part of that, the reason why those things are here is because we're infected by sin in every way. 
The reason why we sometimes need help from therapists because our minds are not always clear. Another impact in my view of the fall. If we talk about sin, I want you to realize we are not just talking about the consequences sin has for you in some spiritual afterworld kind of context, but I want you to know that sin impacts you in ways you can't even imagine. It is a serious thing that flows from evil hearts. Death is the culmination of our sin problem, yes, but before death, sin can cause endless problems. Death is the ultimate judgment, physical death, and then eventually spiritual death. But I want you to know that sin can cause problems in this world. And here we see that, that this is not an isolated problem. All of the earth is impacted by it. Hamilton, a great b- biblical scholar, Old Testament scholar, he says here we see sin is both extensive and intensive. So let me translate that. Sin, by this time, has spread all over the globe. That means every people, tribe, and tongue have been impacted by sin. That's extensive. But what's also interesting is this passage is showing us how intensive sin is. In other words, whatever the bottom of your heart is, if you were to go down to the bottom of your heart, guess what's there? Sin. We say, I love you with all my heart, from the bottom of my heart. Well, guess what? There's still sin down there. Even if you were to say that to the one you love, you need to realize that your, your love is tainted by your fallen condition, your sinful condition. Look at verse 5. It leaves no doubt about it that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. I mean, look at that sentence and read it again and again and again. And it's like God saying, how can I communicate to these people that they are really, 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 really sinful? That's it. Notice how this verse doesn't give us any, any room to say, well, we're mostly good. We, we, you know, down deep inside, we're all really good. And God's word is saying, no. We have this really low view of our potential from the flesh perspective. But let me just push, push pause, time out for just a moment. Notice this. As we get into the New Testament, we realize by the power of the Holy Spirit, as bleak as our hearts are, when we are filled with Jesus... There can be amazing things coming from your life, that your heart can really be changed. We believe in that. But before we can talk about the life change of Jesus in your heart, we have to get real about the sin problem that we have in our heart. The language here shows that like, like the, the, the Nephilim and others, they were like master builders of sin. They were master designers of sin. Knowledge of good and evil, yes, but what they chose was, was evil. Choices leading to suffering and death. It's enough to drive you crazy. When someone sins against you, it hurts. You don't like how it feels. Now imagine what God feels. His reaction here is of brokenness. We would expect anger, but what leaps off the page is this incredible facet of God's character. And that is, he is a pain bearer. When we look at the cross, and in our mind, however you imagine the cross, we often think about the excruciating pain that's communicated on the face of Jesus. And we assume that that pain is mostly due to the presence of nails in his flesh. The pain that he bore on that terrible Friday. 
And though the pain of the cross was very much physical, the more I meditate on the cross, the more I meditate on who Jesus is and what he did for me, the pain he bore was more spiritual and psychological. In other words, the pain he was feeling was the pain of all of our brokenness, the sharp edges of our soul, all the ways that we have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Jesus is bearing that weight on the cross. And we begin to see a picture of this God here in this passage, a God who is bearing the pains of the world, a God who made beautiful things and then watched as the world turned those beautiful things into ugly things. Your sin breaks God's heart. My pain breaks God's heart or my sin does, but the pain that God the Father experienced here, it doesn't lead him to anger. Notice the passage, it says regret. Yes, listen, God regrets the pain and sin in this world. God does not like it. And though he is grieved by your sin as a father, I want you to hear this. God's grief does not negate his grace. He bears the pain, but he's still offering you grace. Let's talk about judgment and grace through the eyes of the Father. It is only in the context of God as pain bearer that we begin to appreciate God as grace giver. The word grace is foreign. I can remember years ago having conversations with um, Let's just call some people who were involved in a cult. I won't tell you which one. Uh, But nonetheless, they were very cultish in their views. And part of this cult was very much about working and earning heaven. That was the main idea. And what's so interesting about these kind of religious views is they make sense, except for when you bring them to the Scriptures. Ultimately, what the Scriptures are telling us here is that we are so evil, there is no way to earn favor with God. The only way to receive favor with God is to receive it by God's grace. And that's what this passage and so many others besides say. But until we understand how serious sin is, that it causes God pain, I don't think we can even come close to understanding the profundity of grace, how powerful grace is. I think that's our problem today in the church is that the reason why we're not real passionate about our witness is because we're not clear about the seriousness of our sins. And, and we don't see our sins as a big deal and we don't see the sins of others as a big deal. Uh, we'll use the word grace as in getting a clean slate. But the thing about it is you don't appreciate grace until you realize what God had to bear, that he suffered long before you received salvation in the cross, that he has put up with a lot of things in your heart and he did so willingly. Judgment is coming to us all. But grace comes because of God's love. One of my favorite Hebrew words for love is hesed or kesed, depending on how you, how you pronounce it. I grew up in southern Illinois, western Kentucky, and me and Hebrew don't get along real well sometimes. Other words too, of course. But um, yeah, hesed is how I've always said it. The word means long-suffering. You see, God has suffered long with your faults. When we see through the eyes of the Father what, what God has to see in us, it is, it is scary. 
In fact, look at verse 7. Um, it says, so the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created. Now, I want you to get this. That phrase blot out can also mean wash away. This is the first hint that the flood is coming. The worldwide flood that would wipe out the world. And it's coming because of the sins of man. And if we left off at verse 7, we would leave off in a bad place. Judgment, death, annihilation. That's what's coming. A flood is coming. But look closely at verse 8. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. And here we see into the heart of God. And we see in the heart of God grace and love for his creation. And he sees in Noah, though Noah is a broken man. We're going to find out later that Noah is a broken man in latter chapters. But here we see that he receives grace. And we realize that no one can escape judgment except for by the grace of God. That was true in the days of Noah and that is true today. If you do not receive the grace of Jesus Christ, the floodwaters of sin will wash you away. But there is another way, the way of the cross. Notice this, the cross of Jesus will wash away your sins or your sins will wash away the hope of your eternal life. This is a really good Baptist statement. We're going to all get baptized one way or the other. We're either going to be flooded out by our sins or we're going to be flooded out by grace. And we call out to you with all of our hearts to come to Jesus because we want you to experience the flood of grace Matthew 24, 37 through 39, read it later today, but you will see that in the days of Jesus and in our day today, there's always going to be those people who are oblivious to judgment that is all around them. God knows this, and he still reaches out with grace. God is moving someone's heart this morning, someone who will either allow that grace to sweep them into the kingdom or if they remain in their sins, be swept away forever. Genesis 4 showed us two ways to live. But here we see two ways to respond. Two, two different paths that our hearts can take. And the Heavenly Father is looking down into your heart. He knows exactly where you are. As we launch into Missions Week, it's important for us to realize that the work of missions requires us to lean heavily into grace. There is no way that we can make it apart from the grace of God. Until we see man's desperate need for grace, we will not be agents of grace. And until we understand how God's grace is the ultimate difference maker, the work of missions will overwhelm us. The spirit of self-sufficiency, the spirit of the Nephilim reign in our culture. And I want you to know that that spirit of evil and wickedness, it's impacted us all. But here this morning is an opportunity to turn from our sins. 20 years ago, I became, I became a father. And it changed my perspective. When I think about what it's going to take to win the world to Jesus, the only way that we're going to have the energy and the passion to win the world to Jesus is to love this broken world the way Jesus loves this broken world. And to be gracious and loving, even when the world 
is anything but gracious and loving. It is through the Father's eyes that we see the value of the cross and the necessity for grace. I don't know what path you're on. I don't know the status of your heart, but the Father's eyes see clearly your heart. And I'm asking you right now, in fact, I'm begging you, will you come to Jesus and receive Him as your Savior? Let's pray. Thanks for listening. For additional resources, to learn more about us or get connected, visit RidgecrestBaptist.org.